Good morning and welcome to Rising. We have a terrific show for you today. Robbie, unfortunately, is out sick, so we have the great Ryan Grimm filling in. Hey, Ryan. Hey, Brianna. How you doing? I'm doing well. It's always good to see your face. Indeed. Well, and you, you remember how, like, decades ago, the left started the long march through the institutions? The end goal was right here, to, <laughs> to have two left-wing hosts controlling Rising, but the commanding heights of the streaming economy, hegemony... It's ours. Let's see what we can do with it. That's right. Stay tuned for the left takeover. I'm sure you guys will be patient with us today. <laughs> well, we will be discussing uh, D.C.'s uh, vaccine mandate for school children and what it means for the 40 percent of unvaccinated black children that will likely be turned away from school thanks to that mandate. Plus, Washington Post health reporter Finnet Nirapil will discuss the excess of monkeypox vaccines sitting in warehouses and the failed rollout of these treatments. But first, the DOJ has asked a federal judge to keep the Trump raid affidavit sealed, saying that releasing it would jeopardize the ongoing investigation. Prosecutors typically submit affidavits from law enforcement officials when seeking a judge's authorization for a search warrant. The court filing was signed by the head of the DOJ's counterintelligence, Jay Bratt, and the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of Florida. Remember Bratt's name because it'll come up again in the saga. Several news outlets had submitted motions in court to unseal the material used in the warrant application. However, the DOJ will unseal additional documents related to the search, they said, but they've also said that unsealing the affidavit with the kind of redactions that would be needed would make it incomprehensible and, quote, would not serve any public interests. And so, Brianna, they're encouraging the judge kind of to reject the uh, the request by these media outlets to reveal the affidavit. They said that, uh, I forget their exact phrase, but something like there would be extraordinarily devastating consequences to witnesses. It seemed to be hmm. you know, kind of te teasing this mole that they're claiming that they have inside the Trump administration, that if the affidavit appears that there would be enough clues that people would be able to piece together uh, you know, who, who the mole is. Maybe it says... Uh, unidentified son-in-law of former president, mm. and something like that. Where, where uh, so mm. what? What do you make? What do you make of the uh, of the Trump administration here, or the former Trump administration, the Trump camp? Um, you know, uh, pushing for some release of documents, and the DOJ coming back and saying, "Well, we can't release this warrant." Did they not? Did they not game out where this was heading? Yeah, it's difficult because on one hand, we do have you know a record of Donald Trump reaching out to people who have been witnesses. We saw this in the context of the 1-6 hearings in a move that has been described by some liberals as uh, witness tampering or attempt to effectively witness tamper. And, and it is understandable why whoever it is that tipped off information or has been, uh, you know, uh, helping with the investigation would want to be kept private until the investigation is at least at a certain point where there's not the risk of foiling it in some ways. At the same time, we are dealing with, I think, a legitimate and in some extent, to some extent, good faith skepticism of the FBI and its ability to conduct an investigation. And the unprecedented nature of this does lead people to want to have proof that it's substantiated uh, and that it's legitimate in the way that it's being conducted. So I do think it's unfortunate that 
that you know the powers that be, the people you know, li- you know whether it's we want to characterize it as the Biden administration, liberals, the D- Justice Department, hasn't gained that exactly what the optics of this are going to be. But more unfortunate, it seems to me, is that we have a pre-existing state of skepticism where potentially there is this there's this tension that doesn't necessarily need to be there. It isn't necessarily inherent to this kind of investigation between a huge amount of public skepticism and the legitimacy uh, and the integrity of the investigation itself. Right. Yeah. And I I think they've got it for that reason, like move really quickly with this investigation, because I understand from their perspective that they say, hey, you know, every every, say, drug dealer that, uh, you know, gets raided by the, the DEA, we can't automatically just turn over the affidavit of how, you know, how we figured out that, you know, this is where the drugs were stashed in the house or whatever. Like, I, I understand why they wouldn't be, want to give up sources and methods, you know, that early in the investigative process. But you're right, this is not a normal case. And so they're they're going to have to move extremely quickly. And, and you know, me, meanwhile, yesterday, uh, you know, uh, President Trump lit, uh, former President Trump lit up social media after he claimed that three of his passports were taken, calling an assault on a political opponent, quote, at a level never seen before in our country. And while no other outlets have yet formally disputed this claim, CBS's Nora O'Donnell appeared to have an inside source and tweeted, quote, according to a DOJ official, the FBI is not in possession of former President Trump's passports, which is an interesting phrasing, doesn't deny them being taken, just says that they're not currently in their possession. Yeah, however, Team Trump came back with supposed receipts. Trump's comms director, Taylor Budowich, tweeted a screenshot of an email and blasted O'Donnell saying, quote, at Nora O'Donnell, did your source read you this email? Did you bother asking if they indeed seized the passports? The email from August 15th reads, subject, passports from Brat J. Yes, that J. Brat, the head of the DOJ's counterintelligence. And says, Evan slash Jim, we have learned that the filter agents seized three passports belonging to President Trump, two expired, and one being his active diplomatic passport. We are returning them, and they will be ready for pickup at WFO at 2 p.m. today. I am traveling, but you can coordinate further with blank, copied above. Thanks, Jay. So I think your insight seems accurate, Ryan, that this is an issue of having taken them, but no longer having them in their possession and trying to kind of thread that needle rhetorically. Right. They kind of slipped it back. Like, what are you talking about? We we don't have these. Uh, the the MSNBC reaction was was pretty fascinating. Let let's do, do we have some of that we can play? Usually in investigations, you seize a passport when you're about to charge somebody, and you you can you're concerned they're a flight risk, or you seize a passport because it contains evidence of the crimes you're looking at. The warrant says agents can seize evidence of crimes they're looking at. What are the crimes they're looking at? Espionage. Great. So what is that? What would that mean? Well, his travel record is in his passport. Could it be possible they're looking at espionage committed while traveling? I don't know. I'm leaning toward the simpler answer. Your passport is not yours, by the way. It's the U.S. government's. It's right. a privilege to have it. They can take it back. Right. And he shouldn't have a diplomatic or, or an official passport. Yeah. Those might be some of the dumbest things I've ever heard. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, what are you talking about? It, Trump's travel records? This is the president of the United States. What, when was this guy, you know, slipping off... You know, it, it reminds me, of, you know, OK, did Michael Cohen go to Prague and meet with the meet with Russians and that one? They they couldn't even actually nail down. But if Donald Trump went to Prague, like to meet with Russians or he went to the Seychelles for some secret meeting with Eric Prince, I think we would know if Donald yeah. Trump made a trip out of the country. Would we not at flight risk? Right. Like, for the, the same most reasons. recognizable guy on the country. 
Exactly. Where's he going? Exactly. You know, I, I, the best faith reading I could potentially imagine if I were inclined to give a good faith reading is that, you know, let's say they, they unlocked the safe. They decided just to scoop out the entire contents of the safe, review what was in them and then return them as soon as possible. I can see a world where, yes, they were technically taken and then returned and maybe they shouldn't have been immediately taken, but it was done as a part of a, a broader sweep of, of documents. You know, let's say you want to just flip through the, the passports to make sure there wasn't anything wedged in and the sake of thoroughness or something like that. Some people might still think that was not legitimate or something that shouldn't have been done, but I don't know that there's, there's necess necessarily nefarious intent, but I completely agree with you, Ryan, the idea that Trump is a flight risk or that he has all of these uncharted trips as the president of the United States that needed to be <laughs> confirmed or disavowed by looking at his passport is pretty incredible. Imagine being the the passport guy who's like looking up, <laughs> seeing seeing Trump come back through, like ah, uh, hmm, interesting. But at at minimum, this is some serious recklessness because they took what 20, 20 boxes. They've got mm -hmm. a whole bunch of quote unquote filter agents. The passports are very recognizable mm -hmm. documents. So you 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 can go through twenty boxes because this these are this is high stakes stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, if this is just a run-of-the-mill uh, yeah, FBI investigation, all right, you, you sweep up some passports, you hand them back the next day. You don't accidentally sweep up the, pre the former president's passports if you're trying if you're trying to take this seriously. And it, and right. it suggests that there isn't the seriousness uh, being given to it that needs to be. Yeah, well, that's this is the question and why people are so curious to know what's in the affidavit. Because if it really is just this issue of documents that were confidential in nature that should have been ret returned as, on a routine basis but don't necessarily contain information that is a, a special security risk or risk to the country or taken for nefarious reasons, then people want to know that because the implication is that the unprecedented nature of the search is because there was evidence that there was something in Trump's possession that was that warranted uh, an intrusion like this, that warranted not just waiting for the Trump and his people to get their act together and finally turn over this document, these documents. And that's not to say it's an excuse for them feet dragging the way they apparently have done and returning these, these boxes of documents. But without more, the feet dragging doesn't seem to be enough to have warranted this kind of intrusion. That is why there's all this scrutiny on the affidavit. And I really do hope for the sake of you know, the kind of liberal political context that there is a, a there there. Yeah. And I, and I right. And I think they need to be as because they said they're going to release some more documents. What you know, whatever the judge says, they're going to release more. And they need to be as descriptive as possible, because mm. I worry that we're headed to a place where, you know, from the right, you're going to have doesn't matter what's found in these boxes, because if it's something bad, uh, the FBI planted it there. And if it if, mm. it's, if it's not something bad, then this shows that they shouldn't have been in there in the first place. And and from the kind of Democratic perspective, uh, they're they're gonna you know they they can they can always say uh, well the things that are in there are so secret that we just can't tell you yeah. and so you will always have a faction of kind of anti-Trump folks who no matter what comes out are gonna be well it's a, it's nuclear secrets it's nuclear codes although which would be hilarious if you if he stole the nuclear codes and they didn't change the codes well, when you have a new that's president exactly the <laughs> like, issue if it's that serious at a certain funny. point it's indictment it's an indictment on the FBI for having waited this long to actually get in there and get it and with respect to the idea of it being nuclear codes I will say that I've seen some conservatives move the goalpost even on that where initially they were saying it has to be as serious as the nuclear codes and now 
now I saw one commentator at least saying, even if it were the nuclear codes, it wouldn't be enough. So I'm sure we'll see uh, more political responses as we learn more information. We have no radars today due to Robbie being out, but we will have more rising for you right after this. Third time, Wyoming Republican Liz Cheney will likely lose her primary election Tuesday. After being the party's leading anti-Trump figure, Ryan, will it be a bloodbath? Looks like it. I mean, the, po the polls have her, you know, the polls that have been released have her down by some uh, 30 points or so. So it's not it's not looking good at all for for Representative Liz Cheney, although calling her Wyoming uh, Republican Liz Cheney is almost a bit of a stretch. You know, she launched her campaign when and in her campaign at first ad on Facebook where she launched it. it she tagged it uh, McLean, Virginia, because she mm. like posted from from her home in, in McLean, <laughs> which where she, where she grew up, where her, you know, her, her father lived. Her father represented Wyoming briefly in the in the House of Representatives, but mm -hmm. spent most of his career in, in Washington, where she has spent most of her life. Uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm torn here because now, now you're going to have Liz Cheney as a free agent. Mm. You're going to, you're going to probably see her on MSNBC a lot. Mm. You're going to, uh, you're going to have people floating her constantly as a vice presidential, uh, candidate or, or maybe even a presidential candidate or teaming, you know, just, just all sorts of just gro grotesqueries that'll be, that'll be thrown out hypothetically, almost rather have her just as a, uh, back, backbench, you know, non-Republican Republican. I mean, how are you, how are you feeling about this? Well, I'm curious, you know, to what you attribute her loss. Is it just the simple story of she was too critical of Donald Trump in a political environment that is not at all friendly to those who openly antagonize uh, Donald Trump? Or is it something else? You mentioned the fact that she's not really seen as someone who is local to the state. You do such good coverage over at The Intercept of these races that often get kind of superficially covered as, well, this is a progressive win or this is a moderate win or the blue dogs have it and the progressives don't. But often Oftentimes there's other stories going on, whether it's the influence of dark money campaigns, the funding differences between candidates, uh, whether or not they've run the kind of advertisements that appeal to locals about fixing streets and, and traffic signals and things like that. Do you have any insight as to whether or not there are things other than Donald Trump that have motivated this outcome? I do think it's fair to say that she started from a more brittle place than people think. Uh, mm. She tried to run for Senate in her in her first bid and uh, just got completely annihilated. Uh, the only way that she managed to win the House race is that it was an open primary. Somebody had stepped down. And so, you know, she had massive name recognition uh, given, given, you know, that she's a Cheney. And so she was able to, you know, squeak through that, you know, move through a Republican primary that way. And once you once you're in, you're in unless there's some kind of, uh, you know, tectonic shift in politics. And I think ultimately, whether or not she, you know she would have had to have a much firmer standing in in Wyoming to withstand you know what what has happened and a lot of this comes back to the tribal nature of our politics and also our media that she is seen as a democrat she is seen there as you know si having sided with the enemy having sided with democrats and when it when it comes to the the media that her voters are consuming you know they don't see this as a 50-50 question they see, they see this as uh, you know, Trump. Trump was right. Uh, the the media is lying about you know January sixth and and everything else about Trump. And here she is siding with the the media elites and with with Democrats, and that's just intolerable. Uh, and so, uh, you know, the only other perhaps possibility she had is if the kind of anti Cheney 
elements didn't consolidate around a single kind of opponent, uh, but seem, you know they have. Uh, so, given all of that, you know, yeah, she's, so she's, in, she's in huge trouble. I definitely echo your concerns about what it means for her to be a free agent. Obviously, MSNBC has become the landing ground of choice for people from failed Republican administrations uh, to get cushy media jobs mm -hmm. and uh, kind of have the public memory hold the extent to which they were originally Republican to begin with. Some of the most visible uh, representatives of the uh, erstwhile left really are people like Nicole Wallace, who former former Bush administration. Um, comms woman and, and people like that. And I, I wonder if you see any parallel, because I've, I've heard this argument made to me over the, of the past week or so. There's an argument that, you know, people like myself on the left, people like yourself, who are critical of liberals who would embrace Liz Cheney despite her broader record just because of her willingness to be critical of Donald Trump, that there's a parallel between uh, those liberals and progressives who will say things like, Marjorie Taylor Greene is right about uh, abolishing the FBI or on her stance on Julian Assange. Do you think that's a, a fair criticism to say you can't be mad at liberals for embracing Liz Cheney if you're willing to give credit, as it were, to other members of the right who from time to time align with leftist interests? I think it's all about, you know, how you do it and and why you do it. And, and, I, and you, I see you're making a veiled reference to one, one of your own one of your own things. And I, <laughs> and I saw it. I saw your interview, you know, some of your interview last night with with Jenk, where you kind of explained your point that you're that you're not trying to convert. Uh, you know, you're not trying to convert Marjorie Taylor Greene and liberals. Let's let's give them the best faith that you possibly can. They're not trying to convert Liz Cheney. What they're trying to do is say, look, even you should be you Republicans should be ashamed of yourselves because even Liz Cheney agreed. You know, e mm. even Liz Cheney, who is a member of the Cheney dynasty, even she agrees with us that Trump ought to be impeached, that this was an insurrectional, you know, whatever they're trying to pull from her. As as to me, as long as it stays in that rhetorical space and that kind of pre-coalition space, that's totally fine. You're you're using somebody as an example of you know uh, doing something right in order to shame people other people into doing that right thing if you then go from there and say oh and liz cheney by the way she's also right that there should be no corporate income tax and that there isn't a country in, right. in this planet that we shouldn't be invading like what, what and and that becomes the danger that once people like her and and her kind of neoconservative wing of the party start hearing all of these nice things uh from democrats that they don't they don't then change their politics, but they end up changing the politics of the Democratic Party, which are, which is already susceptible to some of her kind of the Cheney style war mongering. So on the flip side, as long as it's as long as you're just saying, look, look, here, here you have Marjorie Taylor Greene saying good things about X. You should be ashamed. What are you doing letting, you know, this faction of the Republican Party, which is not operating in, in good faith, take the lead on this? You know, we should be taking the lead on this. Uh, you know, I, I've, I've made that point often say with with antitrust if you mm. if you ever if you ever see kind of uh eccentric republicans who will come come forward with some type of antitrust or, or big tech criticism that is that is valid say hey democrats don't do not let them own this look what they're saying they're right about this they're odious for the most part but they're right about this so what you ought to do is embrace this antitrust you know position so that you don't lose it to them now, if if you go if you go beyond that and say the other things that they, therefore, 
the other things that they say must have some credibility to them as well. But then finally, I thought your point that like you're not what I said earlier, you're not trying to convince Liz Cheney, you're not trying to convince Marjorie Taylor Greene, you're trying to convince well-meaning supporters of yeah. theirs that say, look, we agree on this point, but they're wrong on the rest of it. So come come our way. I don't know. How do, how, how do you feel about the, the parallel there? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I also think there's an interesting question as to whether or not that kind of, um, you know, shaming of your cohort, oh, how could you let the other side do better on this issue than our own side? It has a varying effectiveness depending on how credible that person is within their own cohort, right? So to the extent that Liz Cheney isn't really perceived to be a real Republican at this point, it's going to have diminishing returns if you're trying to shame people on the basis of her being the, a model Republican. And I think you can make the same case for someone like uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Is she so marginal that saying, hey, Mar even Marjorie Taylor Greene is right on this doesn't exactly convince people? I don't know. I, I happen to think that because we're talking to a left audience about someone who is f so far right being right on an issue that it actually has a lot of effect. But broadly speaking, I think you very well articulated my take on this and that there's a big difference between saying, you know, we should be better on X, Y, and Z issue than someone who doesn't have the credibility or who doesn't have the goodwill or who doesn't have the historical perspective as we do, but also let's not float them as a VP candidate for our own party. Right. That's where I draw the line as Liz Cheney for uh, Democratic right. uh, vice president or presidential aspirations. You know, so I'm also I'm reading now uh, Mehdi Hassan's new book that's mm. coming out pretty soon on on how to make an argument. And one of the one of the points that is is one of the best debaters you know in the history of debating. Mm. Uh, one of the, and he actually makes this point that if you're trying to reach a particular audience, that you want that you want to source your information you know to somebody that that audience trusts. And, right. and the example that that he uses, he says, and the line he says he uses all the time is, "Don't take my word for it." And so yeah. when he's talking about immigration, he'll say, don't take my word for it. And then he quotes Ronald Reagan from the 1980s and this this famous speech that he gave near the Statue of Liberty, talking about how, you know, Im immigrants are really the lifeblood of this mm. country. And it's an it's an it's an eloquent passage that he that he then, you know, uh, recites from Reagan. And when you drop Reagan on this right on the right wing audience, then all of a sudden they're open to hearing what else you have to say about immigration. That doesn't mean that you endorse everything else that uh, that Reagan believes. Right, right. I think that's exactly right. I look forward to, to reading that book, Ryan, yeah. and we will it's have good. more it's rising good. for everybody right after this. Former President Donald Trump may have come under the DOJ's radar once again, but the FBI's raid of Mar-a-Lago seems to have boosted 45. A new morning consult poll shows Trump enjoying the top spot of possible presidential picks to run in 2024. 71% want him on the ticket and 58% would vote for him. That's 4% more than in July. But popular Fox News host Laura Ingram thinks many Americans might be ready to turn the page on Trump. Speaking on Lisa Booth's podcast, she said, quote, the country, I think, is so exhausted. They're exhausted by the battle, the constant battle that they may believe that, well, maybe it's time to turn the page if we can get someone who has all Trump's policies, who's not Trump, unquote. Uh, but Brianna, it's kind of ironic that somebody like Laura Ingram would be saying that they want somebody with Trump's policies when Trump's policies are kind of an incoherent mishmash mm -hmm. and not necessarily what Laura Ingraham had herself supported six years ago. Like if you if you put Trump's current platform, whatever you mm -hmm. want to say that Trump's platform is today 
and, and line it up next to what Laura Ingram and the kind of modern conservative movement believed six years ago, you wouldn't actually see a ton of overlap. And it's more Trump's sensibility that they like. So now they're going to change all of their policy preferences or mo- some of their po- some of their significant policy preferences without getting the Trump the sensibility. It, I'm not sure that squares. It's not clear what the objection actually is to at this point. I mean, the idea that the, the good part of Trump is the you know, the policy, I think you're completely right. I remember when he launched uh, his reelection campaign in 2020, he posted, you know, uh, like a paragraph. <laughs> you know, all of these Democrats were racing to prove that they were the better person on health care and taxes and all of these issues. And Trump posts a literal paragraph that was completely without substance and nobody seemed to care. Fair enough. We get it. But what's this other piece? What is the you know ephemera that makes Trump so compelling? I think that people are, are a little bit missing the point. The idea of capturing what Trump uh, inspires in people without it being actually Trump, looking to figures like DeSantis who are Trump-like insofar as that they beat the same culture war drum in certain respects, but don't have that kind of Teflon Don ability to parry all these insults, to demand that fidelity the way that Trump did, to come out unscathed from scandal after scandal because he was so apologetic. The sense that people have that Trump is uh, honest, not because he's necessarily telling the truth, but because he's saying what he wants to say in any given moment without being controlled by handlers. That's a really unique quality. And it is it's interesting to see people like Laura Ingram, who perhaps are tired themselves of having to defend Donald Trump as he gets deeper and deeper into some of these um, legal quagmires, you know, kind of conflating that with policy. Perhaps it's just an, an out for her and a way to, for her to explain why she's kind of over Trump without herself crossing the big man himself. Right. Right. And, and Ron DeSantis, you know, didn't spend 10 plus years, uh, you know, as a kind of reality TV star where he played a, a kind of a played a CEO. Like he was in 20 plus million people's living rooms on a, on, you know, on a regular basis where he was getting the, the star treatment, where he was the he was the boss. Uh, he was a he was a global celebrity for decades before that is he's, he's, that that gives him unique and kind of irreplaceable characteristics that that somebody like DeSantis can try to, like you said, mimic some of the culture war tropes, but, you know, can't can't pull the whole thing together. And so the question for DeSantis is basically, can can you take over the Trump mantle just by being a jerk to liberals? Like, is that enough just just by owning the libs? And, you know, it just I think I think it will feel empty to people in Mm. the end. Well, Robbie makes this point that something that DeSantis does is basically uh, outsource some of his more Trumpian sentiments to his comms agent and that he is able to mm-hmm. get these sentiments out there in the world while still having a certain degree of uh, plausible deniability and clean hands, as it were, that makes him palatable to more traditional conservatives who might be over Donald Trump's shenanigans. And I think there's probably something to that. But Ron DeSantis on a national stage, I think, is largely untested, at least from uh, my perspective as someone who is not as obviously embedded in conservative media, I would have a hard time picking his voice out of a lineup. But I wonder, Ryan, you know, how much do you think Laura Ingram's statements on this podcast have to do with what we learned about her kind of private correspondence with Donald Trump? 
on 1-6 and her warning that she was giving to him behind the scenes, you know, don't do anything that looks like you're inspiring an, an insurrection and, and feeling kind of um, implicated in that and concerned about being further implicated the longer and longer Donald Trump uh, is on the front stage of American politics. I think some of that, but, and also I think there's some resentment, like she, and there's been reporting on this, that she has felt uh, burned a lot by the, mm. by the way that he would, he would call in regularly uh, to her kind of male co-hosts, but uh, very rarely would call, would call into her show mm. and she would get, she would get frustrated by that. We, you know, what am I, what am I chopped liver? I, you know, I've been, mm. you know, I've, I have good ratings. I'm, I'm here too. Uh, and so I think when, when you, when you create that, the, those level of kind of hard feelings among people, that's fine when you're on the rise. Mm. Uh, but, but as you start to kind of recede, and there's and there are openings. Then all of those knives are gonna are gonna come out. Uh, now I think that how this FBI raid unfolds de determines a lot of this. I think without the FBI raid, ironically, Trump was kind of finished. Uh, he was he was he was fading, and I think the both Republican voters and the Republican establishment were coming around to the idea that that his that he, that he was heading off into the sunset. Uh, that this I think has changed. The, the calculus for for them for Trump for for everybody so it it, it all it, it matters how it plays out obviously uh, but you, there is a yeah. there is a path here for him to kind of make a make a, a return were you surprised at all that there was this kind of uniformity of response from conservatives about the FBI raid because you definitely could imagine a world where some people said oh I'm going to reserve judgment see if he actually did something wrong or took this opportunity to really kind of shiv Trump metaphorically, it could be an opportunity for say DeSantis to say, hey, I'm the uncomplicated version here. I'm the uncomplicated option here for you. But we, we haven't seen that at all. The entire party, it seems, has been very much in lockstep. Um, you know, was that surprising to you? And to what do you attribute that? I think once it, once it was clear that there was going to be space, there was going to be a, a lack of knowledge about what the raid was about, that that could be then filled by whatever wish casting people wanted to throw in there, then it, I wasn't surprised at all that they were able to jump in there. If if it looked you know, immediately like this was something related to, let's say, some massive like Saudi corruption that linked mm. in the Jamal Khashoggi killing and and Kushner's two billion dollar investment that he got from MBS, let's say it was let's say it looked like it was something like that, then I don't think you'd have a a lot of Republicans coming in, they, they'd be like, you know what, this is the kind of thing that we didn't like anyway. This is our opportunity to kind of, uh, you know, shove, shove this guy aside and, and move forward. Uh, but once it, once it became clear that, and who knows, maybe it is exactly about that, and we just haven't found out, unlikely it seems like at this point, but once it became clear that people were gonna be able to fill in their, their own gaps, then you're like, well, now, now it's a battle, uh, and it's tribal, and it's, you know the the deep state and MSNBC against us, and so you know they're they're gonna they're gonna rally, and they don't want to get they don't want to become the next uh, the next Liz Cheney. Yeah, well, Trump's up in the polls because of the FBI raid. Biden's been having a good little week, having passed some legislation and generally staying off camera. And the predictions for midterms are looking a little bit better for Democrats than they have in the past. What's your feeling over under on how the last month's events are going to pan out in the fall? It's such a the FBI raid is such a wild card. You know, mm. before the FBI raid, it seemed like there was a significant momentum shift uh, towards Democrats. You also had this recent report in the New York Times that Republicans are 
you know, pulling back some a significant amount of spending in Senate races in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Arizona, you know, which reflects both some fundraising challenges and also challenges uh, from their in- incumbents. You know, uh, you know, all of them. Bla- you know, Blake Masters, not incumbents candidates. Blake Masters, Ron Johnson, and Dr. Oz uh, just running kind of the worst campaign anybody's mm-hmm. ever seen. And so, you know, that combined with Democrats actually doing something. Of getting this this inflation reduction act passed, I think people underestimate, you know, that the the, the power of being seen as doing something. Like mm. even if it even if it didn't work, say in the 1970s when Richard Nixon was throwing the kitchen sink at inflation, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he was just creating all kinds of different commissions, rules, executive orders, talking about it constantly. Price uh, controls. And price controls, like just and just do just getting what Clinton used to call getting caught trying mm. and for and it looked like Democrats weren't weren't even trying mm. and that was deeply demoralizing the Democratic base you had that six week stretch or two month stretch after the leak of the the Roe v Wade overturning where they were just completely flat-footed doing utterly nothing uh, mm. everybody's just walking away from this pit, pitiful excuse for a party now uh, with Kansas uh, you know uh, rejecting that that wrote that kind of abortion constitutional amendment mm-hmm. and with them actually doing something there, there was momentum but yeah the fbi thing i think throws it for a loop how do you feel like the 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 winds are shifting at this moment it is really difficult to say i am a little bit hesitant to buy into some of the the kind of celebratory tone that i'm hearing from some traditional liberal sources just because i think the tail on these victories tends to be relatively short because Democrats don't stick the landing and continue to sing their praises in a way that feels um, substantive. Also, some of the arguably most beneficial parts of the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, some of the things that relate to health care relief for Americans, which is very a very high priority, don't come into effect until years from now, which I think is a real own goal and missed opportunity. And I'm concerned that by the time midterms come around, you're going to have people mostly just still thinking about the fact that they didn't get those stimulus checks that they were promised, that student debt still hasn't been canceled, and potentially the moratorium will have been lifted by that time. And we might be in a very, very different media cycle. But of course, we will continue to follow that story and polls around Donald Trump's popularity and other potential 2024 Republican candidates and give you more rising after this. As we've discussed here on the show before, D.C. is requiring students who are 12 and older to be vaccinated against COVID to attend school this year. Douglas Blair, news producer at The Daily Signal, pressed D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser on this decision and how it could disproportionately impact black students. Let's take a listen. Blair with the Daily Signal, and the question I have is that we have reporting that around 40% of black students in the district are unvaccinated, and therefore, under the district's current policy regarding schools, will be unable to attend school come uh, the school semester starting. So why is the district con- continuing with this policy when it seems to disproportionately impact black students? Um, I don't think that that number is correct. Um, we have a substantially few fewer number of kids that we have to engage with vaccination. Um, And I explained why it's important. Um, It's important for the public health of our students and that we can maintain safe environments. Blair posted a chart from the Washington, D.C. coronavirus response website where he says it is evident that the 12 and up age bracket 
has a vaccination rate of 60%, meaning that 40% of black children are unvaccinated. And so, uh, Brianna, the, seems like uh, either the mayor didn't know what uh, the data was uh, or didn't didn't want to face it openly. But but also this is this is a strange policy for D.C. public schools, I think, with just a, basically a week and a half until schools start, because I don't think that there are a lot of people even say at the CDC or the FDA who would say that the current vaccine designed for the the wild variant, the alpha variant is is you know, significantly effective against BA5. Uh, now, it, it, it might mitigate symptoms slightly in the in the 12 to 18 age range, but because it's so, you know, mild for the 12 to 18 anyway, uh, it's it's hard to measure that. And they haven't produced this kind of new, new variant uh, vaccine. And so they're going to keep kids out. And also, it doesn't seem like there's any effort to factor in uh, whether or not you had have been infected in the past by COVID, because if you if you add that to the sixty percent, you probably get well over ninety percent for these kids. Yeah, well, Mayor Bowser's stance here is out of step with the policies that have been you know implemented across the country more broadly with respect to kids returning to school in the fall. It does represent an outlier case requiring vaccinations in this group, perhaps for the reasons that you articulated. You know, the, the rationale about uh, vaccinations preventing spread is, you know, long dead and kind of in the past, you know, came and went with variants that we can barely remember the names and letters yeah. of. And now we're in a new world where we are acknowledging that the things to do to prevent spread are other kinds of policies which are also, un, you know, unpopular among conservatives, like using higher quality masks, like having ventilators in classrooms, et cetera. But instead of emphasizing those kinds of interventions, it does feel like a really um, unfortunate self-own and kind of an un, unforced error, error in terms of political liability to, to try to force vaccination when there's not much in the way of proof that it's going to improve outcomes here. I'm also curious to see how this plays out as we get closer to the start of the school year. Is it really going to be a, a, a reality that they bar kids from coming in on the first day of school if they don't have whatever documentation it is that proves they've been tested? Or is there going to be a last minute revision of the policy when they do see that there is a significant amount of the population of all races and backgrounds that is likely unvaccinated or, or unboosted um, at least? Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like they're going to have to revise this. It's just under the under the pressure of, of so many kids being you know, ruled ineligible to attend school, which is, which would be just a complete uh, a complete disaster for them. And this is on top of the inequities that we saw over the last uh, year and a half. You know, D.C. was not an outlier in the way that that unfolded in the sense that, you know, ch children, mostly uh, white, but, uh, you know, other uh, other well, you know, well off children in, in good school districts, you know, had access to tutors. Uh, they have, you know, the, the digital divide means that they have much you know, much, much easier access to the types of, you know, to the broadband that they need, you know, to do the on to do the online learning, which which itself was, you know, you know, far inferior to in-person learning. And so you saw uh, and, and teachers, parents, everybody has has kind of seen this firsthand that when 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 people returned, when kids returned to the classroom after being gone for like a year and a half or a year plus, 
uh, you know, the, the behavioral problems, the anxiety, mm-hmm. the, the, the issues that were then, were then uh, they were presented with were, were just exponentially worse than they had been, you know, pre-pandemic. And if you add on to that more time, you know, kept out of school, you're, you're setting kids back, you know, two, three, four or five years in, in ways that are, you know, just are pr- practically insurmountable. Yeah, what's frustrating here is that so much of the policy around school opening and frankly openings of all sorts in the COVID era does seem to have been more about our failure to have adequate child care uh, support in this mm-hmm. country, um, labor policy with a lot of people who I would argue aren't necessarily good faith invested in learning outcomes for children, very much wanting the adult labor population to be able to get back into work and therefore needing the uh, um, uh, babysitter function of schools to kick back in uh, for parents. There was this interesting shift, and I think Walker Bragman uh, has written about this, uh, a reporter, Walker Bragman, about how in the early days of the pandemic, there was this sense that you could exploit the moment to really push at-home education as a way to undermine uh, the public school system and the political valences of the public school system and teachers and their ability to go on strike and be kind of a bastion for a certain kind of um, progressive labor politics. And then at a certain point, there was the realization that the implications for the workforce were so dire that you absolutely needed to start pushing for school reopening, not because you substantively felt like it was safe for kids or were really invested in whether or not there was going to be learning loss, but because there were these implications for the labor market. And it is frustrating to have to read every political choice 15 different ways to try to tease out whether people advocating for one outcome or another are doing so in good faith and with the best interest of kids in mind. But it certainly is difficult to see how requiring vaccinations of this age group at this time is something that should be a priority instead of other interventions like making sure that these classrooms are well ventilated with air purifiers and the like. Right. And to do all of this, when, when there's no kind of meaningful evidence at this point that this particular vaccine is going to be significantly, you know, helpful to this particular population, just doesn't make any sense at all. Like if if this was going to, you know, save thousands of lives, uh, okay, then uh, now we now we have something to talk about. But you have on the one hand all of the obvious uh, costs and harms associated uh, with the policy uh, against no really demonstrable benefit. Uh, and, you know, we, we've been hearing from the very beginning that the amazing thing about these mRNA vaccines is how, you know, quickly they can be tweaked. Uh, you know, we get a different flu vaccine, you know, every every winter kind of tweaked to the strain that, that was around or that mm-hmm. they predict is going to be thing. They said they're, they're going to do a similar thing even faster. Well, you know, we're, we're two plus years on and we don't have it yet. They're saying they're going to roll it out. But, you know, you know, if if they roll it out, if it is actually uh, safe and effective, and it can be proven to be so, okay, then we can have that conversation. But until then, you know, uh, forcing this policy on these kids uh, seems seems cruel. Yeah, my my cynical brain says that America will do anything to avoid infrastructure projects, like actually sure. updating these schools as uh, ventilator systems. That is something that needed to be done long before the COVID pandemic, with asthma rates being what they are, and these buildings mm-hmm. being as old and moldy and decrepit as many of them are. Um, but perhaps I am overly cynical. We will obviously continue to cover what is an ongoing story here with the school system in Washington D.C. and have more rising for you after this.
The monkeypox vaccine rollout has continued to frustrate state officials who say that the feds are not relying on an established system to distribute the vaccine, slowing immunizations and burdening local health departments. Here to discuss is Washington Post health reporter Fennett Nirapil. Welcome, Fennett. Thanks for having me. So what, what on earth is going on? Why, why multiple years into a previous pandemic are we unable to get these uh, doses out efficiently? Well, one of the issues, as the New York Times reported, is that we're not using the same system that we did using during the coronavirus vaccine uh, rollout with the monkeypox vaccine. And you have different agencies involved in this response. Because one of the tricky things about monkeypox vaccine is we're drawing upon a stockpile of vaccines that were in the national stockpile. And really, this was stockpiled in the event of a smallpox outbreak. So the U.S. government has been in this position where they're kind of adjusting on the fly here, trying to respond to a monkeypox outbreak, the scale that they haven't anticipated or that no one in the world has seen before. And they're drawing from a playbook that hasn't really been written up. So they have to they have to adjust here. Well, part of the criticism, right, though, is that this shouldn't have been unprecedented, that at one time there was a larger stockpile of the monkey vac pox vaccine in the United States that they let expire because it cost a certain amount of money to maintain the doses as they go, um, as they expire, rather. And that, moreover, that there were these vaccines that were stockpiled in a European factory that could not be distributed for a period of time because the FDA hadn't basically approved the new factory where they had been manufactured. So there was this sense that there were all of these delays that were not uh, unpreventable, but that were uh, perhaps uh, endemic to the broader public health issues that we've seen exemplified through the COVID rollout. I mean, where are we on all of, all of those kind of supply chain issues in the vaccine? That's absolutely right. We're seeing repeated missteps made here when we could have had more vaccine stockpiled in an event like this. I've talked to experts who raised the point that, you know, we have such a large defense budget and we have so many systems in place in the event of unlikely uh, unlikely attacks in the United States mm -hmm. and unlikely uh, war situations. But when it comes to infectious disease threats, the U.S. government tends not to prepare in the same way. Mm. So now we're in a position where they have ink deals to get more vaccines coming. Mm. We're in a position now that we're supposed to get 7 million new doses mm. by mid-2023. And the U.S. government has authorized this new approach to administering monkeypox vaccines, where you inject it on the top layer of skin and you only need one-fifth of a regular dose. So this is a way of expanding the supply, but it's not necessarily a panacea in its own right. Because you have to train staff to administer shots in this special way, you have to procure special needles. And right now you have all different public health agencies all trying to get these new needles. And we have limited data on just how effective this new approach is. In fact, a lot of what's going on with the monkeypox uh, vaccine is kind of an unfolding trial because there's been limited research on clinical outcomes for people who receive the Genios uh, vaccine because we haven't had monkeypox uh, outbreaks in the West before this. So we are learning as we go here with administering monkeypox vaccines. Yeah, that's part of the critique as well, right? That, you know, this has been a thing that has existed in other parts of the world, but because the argument goes that it's been limited mostly to uh, sub-Saharan Africa, that there just hasn't been the same interest in stockpiling and this belief that this thing called monkeypox could never happen here or can never come here. And that, that, that's part of the criticism, right? That there, the public health response has been 
affected by a bias about what we perceive to be legitimate threats to us here in the West. You said that they expect to have uh, uh, the boot, the l larger volume of vaccines by 2023. Is that enough to head off this outbreak at the pass, or are we going to be dealing with surging numbers, the likes of which escape some of the communities to which the, the outbreak has been relatively limited so far? So right now we're in a position where the outbreak is predominantly, overwhelmingly in men who have sex with men. The pool of eligible people for vaccination in that group is estimated to be around 1.6 million. So right now we're in a position where we wouldn't be able to fully vaccinate that group until several months from now. And then there's always all the various challenges in vaccines. Just because people are eligible and just because you have the supply mm. doesn't mean you're getting in the shots of, in the arms of people who need it. So the open question right now is whether we're going to see monkeypox circulate more broadly in the public. So there was an incident a few weeks ago in Illinois where there was a daycare worker who mm. tested positive and then there were children who were exposed. Mm -hmm. um, we don't know if they were exposed by the kind of close contact where monkeypox usually spreads, but they were given vaccines as a, as a precautionary measure because the vaccines from monkeypox, unlike with coronavirus, they can be administered after someone was exposed in order to prevent them from getting an infection. So as of now with the supply, there is going to be enough down the line uh, to vaccinate eligible men who have sex with men, mm -hmm. if it goes more widespread, if we see an explosion on college campuses, for example, mm. we're not necessarily going to be in a position that we can vaccinate broad swaths of Americans. But I should also like stress here that the World Health Organization and others say we're not in a position that we need to have a mass vaccination campaign, at least at this point. Mm. And even if it does spread more broadly, monkeypox doesn't spread as easily as coronavirus does. Mm -hmm. It's not airborne. It's not the kind of thing that we're expecting to see absolutely rip throughout uh, the world in a way we did with coronavirus. And because monkeypox spreads through close contact with infected people, we're seeing it spread efficiently now because there's a lot of close contact during sex. Right. This is an uncomfortable topic for many areas. You often hear people say monkeypox is not, uh, not a sexually transmitted disease. To some degree, it's splitting hairs here because yeah. Close contact happens during sex. What we're seeing is the overwhelming majority of people who are contracting monkeypox in the samples that researchers have been reviewing have reported intimate activity in the mm. weeks leading up to their infections. Mm. And so sex provides an ideal environment for monkeypox to spread rapidly in a way it is now, and researchers suspect that's one of the reasons we're seeing monkeypox spread at a faster rate compared to earlier outbreaks. Yeah, well, you know, to that point, you know, you've been covering how the monkeypox outbreak has exposed healthcare gaps, especially for gay and bisexual men. Um, I, I'd love to know more about that in this interesting conversation about whether or not to characterize this as a sexually transmitted disease and how much to emphasize that discrete population where it's manifesting most acutely. There are some people who say, I don't want to stigmatize a population, but obviously you also want to be able to focus resources on the population that's most affected. Absolutely. What do you think? about that. So the challenge here is to balance the need to warn the susceptible population with the dangers of stigmatizing mm -hmm. them. I mean, this isn't a brand new challenge for public health. There's long been diseases disproportionately affecting the gay community, namely HIV and AIDS. So usually the approach that they try to settle on is to get the message out to the most affected communities without necessarily making the message all about them. We're seeing that in the CDC guidance for sexually active people, for example. There 
their guidance on safe sex during monkeypox doesn't actually use the words men or gay or anything like that. Mm. But at the same time, they're releasing data that shows that the overwhelming majority of monkeypox cases are in gay and bisexual men. Mm. So what they're trying to do is get that safe sex guidance out to gay men. Mm -hmm. Having community organizations, influencers spread the word on it so that people know about uh, the opportunities to reduce your exposure by skipping sex parties, by limiting the numbers of partners until you can get uh, vaccinated without necessarily making it all about gay men. Mm -hmm. um, and at the I'm same time, at the same time, the reason that you do want to emphasize that the cases are overwhelmingly among gay and bisexual men is because we have limited resources right, right now. I mean, I hear all the time from people who are worried that they're going to get monkeypox from sitting on a toilet seat or grabbing a glass of water. And that's not how we're seeing monkeypox spread right now. Yeah. So when you have limited resources available to protect people, you want to get it out to the people who are at highest risk. Yeah. And then we're also seeing two equity issues here in terms of getting resources for monkeypox to people. One is the equity issue of how gay men are treated by the healthcare system. Mm. You often have judgmental doctors. Mm. You have uh, doctors and other healthcare professionals who aren't necessarily up to speed on the latest uh, public health threats that are targeting gay men. Right. I've talked to so many patients who have to educate their doctors themselves mm. about what monkeypox is and what they should be looking out for and how to get treatments to them. And then within that, you're seeing professional, wealthy, white gay men who are struggling to get access to monkeypox vaccines mm. and to therapeutics. We know in the healthcare system, there's disparities in how people of color and people with lower income receive healthcare it's even worse for those populations. We are seeing data suggesting racial gaps in vaccinations yeah, and that. access to treatment. Yeah, well, Ryan, what do you make of this? And, well, yeah, and Senate, I, I, I'm curious what you think the, 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 the real world harms have been from, from, this, from this approach. So I, I would guess, and I'm curious for your take on this, that due to word of mouth, a lot of sexually active gay men have become aware that they are at heightened risk uh, of contracting monkeypox but your point about uh, medical professionals and you know and that's and that's despite the reticence of public health officials to actually you know talk talk to talk about this like we're adults but i wonder if the the biggest impact is on medical professionals because they, they're not in chat rooms they're not they're not getting the word of mouth grapevine knowledge that you're getting if you're a sexually active uh gay man at this point and so they might just genuinely not understand, you know, that who's who's at heightened risk, and so then if they have a a gay patient who comes to them, might 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 have to be educated by that patient, which is deplorable because that that's the role of public health officials. But so I'm I'm curious on the ground from your perspective, what has been the actual consequences of this reticence among public health officials to 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 talk about this. So in the clinical guidance that public health officials provide to doctors, they are spelling out that it's gay and bisexual men who are high risk for monkeypox. But that said, there's a lot that doctors have to keep up with in terms of rising uh, public health threats and diseases that are circulating. So in one sense, it is understandable that it's hard for people who are in the healthcare industry, especially those who've been exhausted after two and a half years of pandemic life to be keeping up with everything. 
But on the other side, monkeypox is one of the few public health emergencies that have been declared in recent years, and it is a virus that's spreading through the gay community, and a failure to keep up with the viral threats that are disproportionately affecting the gay community does have real-world consequences, and I'm hearing that in the interviews with gay men who are talking about uh, symptoms of monkeypox that feel like they're passing shards of glass when they're going through the bathroom. Mm. And so it is important to get the word out to medical professionals. And this is one of the binds that we're in, is that there's only so much value in the general public knowing that this is a disproportionately concentrated and gained bisexual men, because we are seeing this used uh, we as a weapon against uh, gay people and as uh, something to embolden homophobia. Here in Washington, D.C., there was an incident where uh, a gay couple was attacked on the streets and called monkeypox and the F word hmm. uh, while they were being attacked. That said, there's always hate against gay people. And I've talked to many gay activists who say, like, monkeypox is just another excuse that people are, who are already showing hate are going to seize on to to continue being hateful. What's important is to get the word out to gay and bisexual men about a threat that they are living with and want to avoid. Well, Fennett, thank you so much for taking the time to join us in studio today. Thanks for having me. And we will have more Rising for you right after this. So New Polling in New York's 10th district shows an awfully close race in this new, newly drawn open seat. You, Danny Goldman, who was a, an MSNBC uh, pundit, who was also one of the attorneys leading the first Trump impeachment, is leading the field at 22 percent. Uh, Yu Lin uh, local state legislator, at 17 percent in second place. Mondaire Jones, congressman from north of the city, who's now running in the city, at 13 percent. And Carlina Rivera, city councilwoman, also at 13 percent. So a very close race, which was which was rocked by a rather shocking endorsement uh, recently by The New York Times when they jumped in to back Dan Goldman. What the first thing that was so shocking about this is The New York Times, uh, Brianna, almost never. They, they, they practically have a rule against endorsing somebody who is a self-funder. Mm -hmm. uh, and this uh, Dan Goldman gave himself, he gave his campaign a million dollars very recently and is, you know, you know, I'm sure he will you know, give more down down the stretch. He is the heir to the Levi Strauss fortune. He's mm. personally said to be worth something like two hundred and fifty million dollars. But that's before he's inherited mm -hmm. you know, the, this this massive fortune that'll that'll come his come his way next. And so they didn't if they ever do endorse a self funder, they will they'll they'll do a lot of self flagellation along the way and say that how 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 sad they are, but they have no choice to endorse this self funder. Mm -hmm. They didn't they didn't even remotely do that this time. The only the only clue they gave to that was they said both Goldman and Mondaire Jones will have a lot of work to do to in their first term uh, to show the kind of working class areas of the district that they understand their concerns. So basically, they want to give Dan Goldman a trial period of two years to see if to see if he can start to identify with the working class people uh, in, in the district. But they didn't really explain why he would. You know, he's so out of touch with the working and, class and they people lump in the district. Mondaire Jones in there, drawing some equivalence right. between their background. I mean, I don't know a ton about Mondaire right. Jones's background. I confess that I did go to law school with him. But my understanding was that he does not come from an especially affluent background. Yeah. And I feel like I've heard him speak before about some economic struggles growing up that obviously he was able to, you know, kind of volley out of with, yeah, he, uh, through his educational attainment. 
Yeah, he was he was raised by a a single mom who who cleaned houses in the district that he currently fairly wealthy district that he currently uh, represents. So he you know he understands working class struggle, and so the way that they kind of shoehorned them together was pretty disingenuous because what they're saying is that Mondaire Jones has never lived in that district, hmm. uh, you know, because he he got pushed out of his own district by right. Sean Patrick Maloney and, and wound up running in this one, so he just physically, literally hasn't been in these communities, whereas Dan Goldman does live there, but just kind of looks out at, at his window from the back seat of his, his chauffeured sedan. <laughs> what they didn't what they didn't mention is that his the, the, the Goldman family and the Salzberger family uh, are, are are very close. Then, you know, his the, you know, his his mother uh, and, and and Kathy Salzberger served together on the board of, of Sidwell Friends back when mm. he went to Sidwell Friends, which, as you know, is this the super elite kind mm-hmm. of private school in in Washington, D.C. He was a year ahead of this guy, Dave Perpich, who is uh, the, the son of that of that mom, uh, who is now a, a big shot at The New York Times, a, a major executive over there and who was in the running to actually be the publisher of of the New York Times. Didn't didn't get that position. So, you know, we don't know whether you know what what role the Salzberger family had in this, but the Salzberger family oversees, you know, the the editorial board reports directly to the Salzberger family. And so when you look at this field of candidates and you and then you see that they 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 chose Dan Goldman out of all of these candidates, like, wow, uh, this they're just trying to prove Trump right, it seems like. Yeah, it's a fascinating race and a fascinating district. The, I, that was my previous district when I live in Washington, D.C., and it stretches up the the side of Manhattan. So there's parts of it in the north of the city that are more uh, Harlem, Morning, Morningside, Heights-ish, and more diverse and lower income. But it goes right down the Upper West Side and right down into the West Village. And so there is a, an interesting dynamic here where there's always this rhetoric about whether a candidate knows the district and is able to connect with the district with the presumption that the majority of people in any district in the country are going to be more working class. But this is one of those places where I don't know that I feel that same um, need for them to have to, to have those kind of like uh, John Fetterman bona fides when we're talking about representing perhaps one of the most affluent parts of the, the country and the city there is. Also, New York has this interesting dynamic where you know people live in lots of different parts of Manhattan. And I don't know that someone who lived uh, in Midtown East and then moved to the West Village or the Upper West Side doesn't know anything about the Upper West Side because they were living, you know, across a, a random borderline, you know, on the other side of Central Park, as it were. So I'm interested to see whether or not that kind of a that kind of a distinction makes a difference to the voters in, in the district, especially given that everyone's kind of aware of this weird uh, musical chairs that's happened because of the redistricting uh, in the in the state. Yeah, and I, and I think Mondaire Jones really needed this endorsement. Like if if he had gotten it, and and what I had heard is that he was, and you you can read the uh, you can read the endorsement and see that it was very that the the board you know was it was very close between the two. We don't know how ultimately. The thumb went on the scale to fit to, you know, how ultimately Goldman got it over Jones. If Jones had gotten it, I think he'd be you know, in serious contention without it. Uh, he's really struggling. And that leaves, you know, I think Yulin knew in, in a in, in the, the best position to beat Goldman here because, you know, she she has this huge base of support. In, in in Chinatown, both in in where is it is it Queens or Brooklyn or and Manhattan, you know the city better better than me. Mm-hmm. But there you know there's two two major Chinatowns. Mm-hmm. She re- she represents them both in the state 
legislature and is a very popular official there, has has an extraordinary volunteer operation. And so the question is, was Emerson College you know, able to effectively poll Chinatown uh, or or is she going to be able to pull more support out of there? Plus, she also has a lot of the kind of DSA backing, you know, mm. progressive, you know, a lot of progressive uh, you know, kind of or organizations in in the city are behind her as well. So that that combined coalition might be enough to surprise uh, the the pollsters uh, on election day in a very difficult to poll time because it's it's next week. You know, uh, lots of uh, all of Dan Goldman's voters, you know, his base will all be in the Hamptons or vacationing mm. somewhere else. And so unless he can get them to file their absentee ballots, it's it's going to be tough. Whereas I think a lot of the working class voters you know, will be will actually be in the city. Mm. Vote. It's going to it's going to be low turnout either way. Uh, the, the the poll su- was surprisingly low for Carlina Rivera. She's a fairly popular you know uh, city councilwoman with a big base of support there. Uh, and, and maybe they haven't effectively polled her base either. I think so. It's still, I think, very, very much up for grabs. But the New York Times endorsement is massive in, in these kinds of races. Uh, and for them to come down with, uh, you know, for, for Dan Goldman was it's a rather extraordinary call on their part uh, and, and really risks their credibility in a lot of ways, what, well, what, they, have, what they have left. Yeah. How much these endorsements do matter, given that it seems, at least in the presidential endorsement uh, context, whoever the New York Times picks absolutely does not become president of the United States or the or the party's um, the primary the party's primary winner. They very famously, of course, I guess, co-endorsed Elizabeth Warren and mm-hmm. uh, Amy Klobuchar in 2019, mm-hmm. and very shortly after, I think both women's fates were kind of sealed in the, in the, in the broader general election context after it was, it was around the time that Warren was having a really great summer and that endorsement didn't seem to boost her in, in any real way. But you're saying it's different with these local contests. People really pay attention to the New York Times endorsement. Right, because a lot of people don't have, you know, they don't have intimate knowledge of all of these different candidates. And so for a lot of them, yeah, they'll just, for a local race, they'll just look and say, oh, uh, this is, you know, this is the times like this person must must be fine. I think like Alessandra Biaggi's challenge to Sean Patrick Maloney, they, they also endorsed Maloney, which was a rather bizarre move on, on, on their part. And I think for Biaggi, that was kind of her chance because they're like, if, if you're going to find voters who are, you know, persuaded by a New York Times endorsement, it's going to be, you know, these primary voters in Manhattan yeah. and north of the city who read the new who read the New York Times. The 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 Warren uh, the Warren case is an interesting one. If you remember, like her, her polling really started to plummet um, among Democratic primary voters right after the New York Times ran this this huge kind of uh, analysis of how they, according to them, that she was unelectable in a general election, and and that really kind of stuck to her. Mm-hmm. And for these kind of partisan voters who consider themselves to be pundits and wanted the most electable candidate to have the New York Times. Uh, tell them, you know, with their needles that she can't win. They're like, all right, well, who who else you got? And mm. you started seeing people move away from her. So that's not that's not the endorsement playing a role, but it is the New York Times effect um, playing out among these readers who do, who really do see the New York Times as kind of a north star for them. Well, I think your your point about uh, the support in the Chinatowns across the country, I think, is a good one as well as a group that potentially is not as beholden to the New York Times endorsement. I do remember when we were covering AOC's race back in 2018, her, her first race, 
talking about Joe Crowley having such a bang head in part because he had very good relationships with, I believe it was Queens's Chinatown and the Chinese American community there. And that that had been kind of the, the, the root of his power, uh, his congressional power for a really long time. Um, so we'll see, obviously AOC was able to get turnout in other kinds of areas. The Intercept did a great job covering how it was actually these kind of gentrified mixed race areas in her district that came out and had a lot of DSA door knocking campaigns that was able to overcome that effect. But I do think it's very interesting to track some of these populations that aren't as closely followed yeah. in the area. Uh, of course, we will continue to follow this story and more and give you more rising after this. President Biden is set to sign the Inflation Reduction Act today, according to a new report from the Congressional Budget Office. Americans earning less than $400,000 will pay an estimated $20 billion more in taxes over the next decade in order to fund the legislation. So Biden administration officials face some tough questions about the soon-to-be law over the weekend. Let's take a look. But, but let me ask you, it's, it's called the Inflation Reduction Act. But the Congressional Budget Act uh, Office, which is nonpartisan, said that there would be a negligible impact on inflation this year and barely impact inflation at all uh, next year. I mean, isn't it almost Orwellian? How can you call it Inflation Reduction no. Act when the nonpartisan experts say it's not going to? So I appreciate that. Out? I appreciate the question. We've actually addressed this, the, the CBO. It was the top line number. There's more in there that shows uh, that it will have the money uh, from. Remember how we're doing this too. It's it's making sure that billionaires uh, in corporate America are paying are paying their fair share, making sure that it's that the tax code is a little bit more fair. There are three independent studies, though that show it's actually going to have a minimal effect on inflation and that many parts of the bill obviously don't even take effect until next year, some years later than that. So what specifically will this bill do to lower costs for Americans right now? Oh, I, this, this, first of all, immediately, um, people will be able to lower the fuel costs in their home. There's a 30% tax credit that you can claim in 2022 for installing energy efficient windows, heat pumps, energy efficient appliances. That is right away. Meanwhile, Joe Biden cruised by reporters on the beach in South Carolina. Here he is. So, Brianna, let me let me give you my my hot take on this uh, this twenty billion dollars. Uh, so, it's actually kind of in some funny ways Fox News and Republicans' fault. You know, so and here's what I mean by this. So, Democrats have said, look, there are going to be no extra audits than there have been in the past of people who make $400,000 or less as a result of this law. Uh, Janet Yellen has instructed the IRS, make sure that you keep audit levels, people making 400,000 or less at those levels. Like, so that, that's, that's the instruction. So in other words, nobody, nobody's going to, you know, if you're under 400,000, the chance of you getting audited, despite these 87,000 new IRS agents is the same as it has been over, over recent years and with a desiccated IRS that has you know, lost agents over the last uh, 10 years. But people don't necessarily believe that. 
uh, Fox News is telling them that they're going to get audited because of these 89,000, 87, 89,000 agents. The Republicans are saying you're going to get audited because of all of these agents. And so they are doing the work of the IRS for them. And so what they're doing is they're telling people, look, no matter what the government is, is saying, your, your chance of getting audited is going way up. So that Schedule C that you file where you're writing off, uh, you know, writing, writing off all of these expenses as business expenses that might not actually be business expenses, you better button those up. You better make sure that you're doing things by the book in coming years. And so as a result, the IRS is going to get about an extra $2 billion a year in people saying, OK, I was I was kind of pushing the envelope before. Now my chances of getting audited are going up. I'm going to push the envelope a little bit less. I'm going to pay a little bit more of of my tax bill. So it's not that people's tax rates are going up. It's what 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 this report is saying is that people are going to comply a little bit more mm. out of a fear of getting audited and that fear hilariously is being driven by Fox News and Republicans. So in some ways, we're like, OK, fine, let 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 Fox News continue to talk about these eighty nine thousand new uh, tax agents, because it's going to then it, it's going to persuade people to actually pay what they really owe. And if they don't owe it, they're not going to pay it. Nobody's that dumb. So, so the headline here is rich people in the upper middle class finally pay their fair share as a <laughs> right. consequence of Fox News fear mongering. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that. that Yes, they're they're scaring their own viewers who a lot of them are business owners and are using these LLCs and other pass throughs. They're scaring their own viewers into paying what they actually owe. If they don't actually owe these taxes, they're not going to pay them like it's it's that simple. So the, the law did not add new taxes to people making less than four hundred thousand dollars. And it's trying to say, look, you're not going to you're not any more likely to get audited than you were before. But like I said, yeah, Fox is like, no, oh, you definitely are. They're, they're, you know, you're going to have an agent just assigned personally to you every year, so you better pay your tax bill. Right. Also, you know, to be clear, it's not just that the IRS is hiring a bunch of new agents. They're hiring new staff, including people who are technical support staff and other kind of people, not just folks that are literally uh, grilling your uh, tax forms. And that it's because, as you alluded to, Ryan, there has been a defunding of the FBI over the last 10 years. And this basically resets the <laughs> levels to they were about 10 years ago when audits of people who were affluent, making well over $400,000 a year, were double what they they are today and have been over the last few years after largely conservatives have very intentionally uh, neutered the ability of the IRS to go after tax cheats uh, and elites. I do think there is some legitimate concern. I think the fear that people have that the growth of a government agency that has historically been weaponized in certain ways against political dissonance, you know, uh, Al Capone going down for mm -hmm. tax fraud kind of famously in the, in the public imagination. And, and I wonder what you make of this particular piece that people have picked up on, which is the idea that there used to be in the bill language that prohibited a raising of tax or, or a targeting of folks under that $400,000 threshold that at some point was removed. People are reading into that that there is a kind of a, a bad faith uh, interest in going ahead and um, uh, auditing or targeting that group of people. Do you think that's a fair implication to draw or inference to draw? Yeah, I, sure. I mean, and, and people not trusting their government and not trusting what they're told, I think, is is also is also fair. And I, and I also think that th this this the billions getting thrown at the IRS will actually improve the kind of technological capacity of mm -hmm. the IRS uh, that you know, once you have kind of 
be- better software programs that are able to, and maybe they'll even start, you know, deploying different, you know, rudimentary types of AI to com- to compare. Okay, here's your Schedule C. Here's this law. Here's this law. Right, like right now, an audit often means like somebody, you know, an audit means an agent like looking over your paperwork and with their pencil making sure that everything lines up. Once you can, once you can fully automate that, uh, then 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 people are going to be you know, un, under the gun a lot more, you know, they're, they're not gonna be able to get away with the kind of moves that you've been made that you've made in the past. Um, but I think I think your point is, I think that point is is fair. And I, and I suspect it has something to do with uh, court cases, like, let's say somebody, somebody sues, and mm-hmm. after they get audited, and they say, well, you know, the, the law says that they weren't allowed to target anymore. And I feel like I was targeted unfairly, rather than targeted as you know, traditionally, people have been in the past, the same audit rate. So yeah, uh, sure. And and like I said, skepticism is uh, of of government proclamations is is definitely uh, warranted. Yeah, I mean, the other piece of this is that I do think, you know, from that Karine Jean-Pierre clip, she's not doing a really good job of selling this Inflation Reduction Act. You know, at least Jennifer Granholm had some items to tick off that were tangibles that voters can feel um, and ways that they will benefit. Although even there, the idea that I'm going to install a new uh, heating system or energy efficient systems and and, uh, heat proof windows and things like that does suggest to me a degree of disposable energy income that a lot of people aren't going to have. I, I understand making these kinds of infrastructural changes has long-term effects, but it also presumes that people are able to put up the money in the first instance. And when we're talking about people at the bottom who are really being hurt the most by high gas prices and high food prices, I don't know how assuring it is to hear, on one hand, Karine Jean-Pierre try to fumble around a little bit for an excuse as to why, how the Inflation Reduction Act is actually going to reduce inflation. And then hear Jennifer Granholm saying, yeah, sure, you can install you know, uh, heat-proof windows or extra thick-paned windows, and that's going to lower your electricity bill. I mean, what do you think about the messaging aspect of this? They, they could just you know, zero in on the, de- in the deficit reduction part, you know, they, mm. by just playing with the conservative rhetoric, like, Hey, conservatives, like you've been telling us for decades that if, that if you reduce the deficit, that that's going to have a deflationary effect, that that's, that that's good for inflation long-term. This massively cuts the deficit. Are you saying that you were lying about your concerns about the deficit? Were you not serious? <laughs> like, you don't care about the deficit? Because, of course, they are lying about right. the deficit. And, and the link between the deficit and, and inflation is way, is, has been proven to be way, way overblown. But as long as they're still clinging to that rhetoric and claiming that the federal deficit is what's driving inflation, then reducing it ought to reduce inflation, right? Or are you, or are you, just, are you just making that up? And then, then I would just stick with that. And then you say, look, uh, you know, we're gonna, we're, it's going to cut drug costs. And you could just, you could just move on. From there, it's not going to do it immediately, like you said. It's going to take till you know what twenty twenty five or so mm-hmm. uh, to start to start kicking in. But you could you could mention that, and you could say the deficit reduction, and and you could you could be done with it right there. Um, but I, you know, uh, yeah, Kareen's Kareen was kind of like stumbling around there a little bit, uh, and also like it's what do they what do they want from a you know set what's it's a seven hundred it's a seven hundred billion dollar bill. It's over ten years. Uh, and this is a you know fifteen sixteen trillion dollar economy, so of course it's not going to have like some you know massive immediate effect on in, on inflation. That's just not how 
our economic system works, yeah, right? Yeah, I, I kind of quite like that result. If you wanted us to do more, then we needed Republican support to do more. It's a big mm. economy and yeah. would love to have more effect. But here's what we have managed to accomplish. Right. And I also think, yeah. you know, there is something to owning that deficit discourse. It certainly does give a neater, cleaner answer to Karine Jean-Pierre, who has been struggling a little bit in these interviews. Uh, free free advice here from Ryan right. Rising. <laughs> we'll have more Rising yeah, for you, you <laughs> right after this. Mehmet Oz, the good doctor, is out with a new video in his pursuit of running the most embarrassing and hapless campaign of the cycle. Uh, let's take a look at this. Brianna has yet to see it, so we're going to get her, her live reaction to this one. I thought I'd do some grocery shopping. I'm at Wegner's, and I, my wife wants some vegetables for crudite, right? So here's a broccoli. That's two bucks, not a ton of broccoli there. Here's some asparagus. That's $4. Yep. Carrots. That's four more dollars. That's $10 of vegetables there. And then we need some guacamole. That's four dollars more. And she loves salsa. Yeah, there's salsa there. Six dollars. Must be a shortage of salsa. Guys, that's $20 for crudite. And this doesn't include the tequila. I mean, that's outrageous. And we got Joe Biden to thank for this. <laughs> and so, first of all, so I, I was born in Pennsylvania. I can tell you, he's at a Redner's which is kind of a very standard grocery store. He calls it Wegner's, which is clearly in his mind a mashup of Wegmans and, Wegmans, and Redner's. Yeah. And it comes up with Wegner's. That's just, a, that's just a start. It's like every three seconds there's another, what? So what, 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 was, what were the first eight things that jumped out at you? When I think of relatable grocery store buys and indicia of how high inflation really is, I got to say my brain goes to milk, eggs, bread, not crudite. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, I'm not trying to do like elite punching, like, oh my gosh, only Obama eats arugula, but it isn't a really odd choice. I think there is a, definitely a conversation to be had about how vegetables are expensive and have been even before this uh, inflationary moment and that it, it is much more difficult to eat cheaply and healthily at the same time. I also think there's something to be said for how it's a lot uh, more cost effective oftentimes to buy prepackaged foods like a, like a $10 uh, vegetable tray with dip as opposed to trying to assemble things yourself for precisely this reason. But it just is so um, off-putting and at the same time authentic. Like I get the sense that his wife really was trying to put together crudite because who would come up with something like this? Right, but she would never send him to the store to get it because <laughs> she's going to be like, what is this What is this fresh cold salsa that's supposed to be doing with this crudite? Like, <laughs> this, this is not the kind of dip I would want with asparagus. Are you crazy? And also... Dr. Oz doesn't seem to understand. He's trying to get this, like the the fresh cut, you know, the freshly made salsa there from Renner's. You want you want cheaper salsa. You got to get the the warm stuff in the jar. In, in, yeah. the, in the jar. Like <laughs> I'm sorry that it was six dollars for this freshly <laughs> made stuff for you. You you don't like paying the the three or four dollars for the guacamole there. Go get an avocado and and make your own guacamole. But yeah, the, the crudite was was not coming together uh, whatsoever. <laughs> and he finishes by saying, "This is before the tequila. A, you can't get tequila." At, grocery stores in, in Pennsylvania. <laughs> but in what way is tequila? I guess he saw maybe he he picked up the sauce and the guac. And so then he left the crudite world and went into he's going to go make margaritas. Right. For his wife. Right. Look, yeah. grab the salsa, grab the guac, 
get some chips, get your tequila, have yourself a time. Leave the asparagus behind. Leave that sad-looking broccoli behind. <laughs> now I know. I did. I, I did see on Twitter. I hadn't seen this clip, but I did see people talking about uh, elites apparently liking to dip uh, asparagus stalks into salsa. And now I am glad to finally understand <laughs> where that discourse okay. is coming from. It was some. So, it was some Dr. Oz mockery, not a genuine uh, trend among elites. I thought it was maybe some kind of uh, weight weight loss diet tip <laughs> to snap on salsa and asparagus. Now I just know it's people dunking on Dr. Oz and I, I, I'm feeling much more assured. Yeah, that, and also that's a pretty good amount of carrots for $4. That was a, that was a really healthy bag of, bag of carrots. What I want to know though is, does, is this a Bloomberg situation where his staff is just cashing checks and act, actively hating and working against the guy? Because if you have, you've worked on a campaign, if you, if you are a staffer that cares about the campaign, you're like, hey, either we're not going to do this or we're at least going to retake it with the correct name of the grocery store that you're in. Instead, they're like, all right, doc, this works. This is going this is going right up into the feeds. That's a really good like, question. Do they hate him? I, I think Bernie was unique insofar as there was no coaching. <laughs> there was no uh, asking Bernie to do, there were no takes. You know, he, you know, Bernie wasn't really himself. And I think out of that authenticity also came in, uh, uh, the fact that we didn't really need for there to be takes. People liked who he was. They knew who he was. They've known him for a really long time. I think part of Dr. Oz's problem is he's doing this hard pivot from someone uh, who was a TV star and a TV star that was appealing to, yes, a certain more elite faction of the American viewer, the more middle class or middle class uh, housewife. And his expertise was as a medical professional and didn't need, and he wasn't aspiring to do anything other than that. And now he's, he's trying to be something that he really isn't. And I think there's a world where Dr. Oz is just like, look, I I'm a doctor. I, this is not my lane, but I know about let's say COVID stuff, or I know how to run a business or, or things like that. I can't imagine Donald Trump trying to pretend that he knows anything about grocery shopping and people right. frankly loved him for it. Right. The same, same with Bernie. Like if you, like he does his own grocery shop. It reminds me of this, that, uh, anecdote from Ari Ravenhoff's book where they, they go to the grocery store and he, he buys like a steak and some frozen peas and some ice cream, <laughs> uh, comes back. He just, throws the cold steak unseasoned or anything just and then he fires up the grill and then he like throws the throws the peas in the microwave and it's like but that's authentically bernie yeah like, like, the public public wouldn't see that as anything other than oh that's that's bernie uh so in some ways that's doc dr oz. They, they, they should they should just do these bits every day like dr oz <laughs> trying to be a regular person and if they're funny enough then maybe they'll elect him just to keep getting these gags yeah, Dr. Oz as Amelia Bedelia, the self-effacing Amelia yes. Bedelia. We have actually uh, a tweet from the United Farm Workers who trolled Dr. Oz here, uh, having a little fun. Ever wonder where broccoli and your crudite comes from? This is how it's harvested. Using this as a moment to emphasize the labor that obviously goes behind putting all of those, getting all of those uh, vegetables into the store. You know, I want to ask you this, Ryan, uh, you know, a friend and colleague of mine, Nathan Robinson, got in some hot water on uh, Twitter a couple of weeks ago, criticizing people who are, you know, leaning too far into the, the making fun of this aspect of Dr. Dr. Oz's approaches, instead of talking about the substantive policy differences between Dr. Oz and Fetterman. Do you think that that's fair, that we're losing sight of what, you know, the left has to offer here substantively because we're focusing so much on the super 
maybe, but if you're focusing on the superficial and you're leaning into the kind of the emotional element here, which is that Dr. Oz is a plutocrat who's out of touch, mm -hmm. then you're well, you're still well within kind of a, a left, a left wing critique. And so if, if that's how, if that's how you, John Fetterman beats Republic, beats a Republican by making them look like an out of touch plutocrat, although, uh, you know, Oz is doing this very much on his own, you know, you, for a second, you would think that this was a like surreptitiously recorded video by the Fetterman campaign, right. you know, catching him <laughs> in the act of being an out of touch plutocrat. It's actually him just doing it with his staff and uploading it to social media. So I, I don't necessarily think so because I think, I think you know, win winning mass popular support is about connecting emotionally uh, mm -hmm. with people and telling them a story, and then and then you fill in the the, the policy behind that uh, afterwards. And, and if and for people who are deeply curious, they can go find the policy. But you know, in order to move people, I think you have you have to move them. And so and I think if it if if this works, uh, then then you go with it. And so as as long as it's like in that frame of a kind of left populist, like look how look how clueless this super rich mm -hmm. person is, and then they're thereby indicting the the kind of the the rich class, then I think that's that's fine for you know uh, for kind of somebody like. Uh, somebody like him who has like socialist politics and is trying to bring people into, you know, into socialist politics. I don't yeah. know, what, what, what was your reaction to that? I, th I think that's right. I think that there is a line where you can tip over into trolling so hard that you lose kind of public goodwill or you lose sight of what your actual mission is. Um, but I don't know that we're anywhere near that. And sometimes I do think the left needs to accept a win. Just say yes, yes. to the win. <laughs> well, Pocket that W. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Tomorrow on Rising, we have reporter Lee Harris joining us to talk about the environmental aspects of the IRA. And of course, it was great to be with you today, Ryan. Yeah, this this was a lot of fun. It was kind of kind of last last minute, but I think our left wing takeover here of Rising <laughs> is pretty effective. We'll we'll, we'll bring uh, we'll bring the balance back uh, tomorrow. Uh, but and also don't forget to check out the the podcast. Of course, if if that's how you like to listen to this, you can get it. You can get it there now. Uh, for for all you folks uh, on the go, although I don't know about on the go, because it's like more than an hour, so you got a long way to go. <laughs> this is more like people who are who are supposed to be working uh, and listening to it in the background, which is I think a great way to to, to pass the time on the clock. So one of my call-in show last night told me they listened to some of my content when they were um, checking people out in the grocery store yesterday, and it warmed the cockles of my heart. <laughs> there you go. Perfect. Perfect. Well, we, we will see you tomorrow. You can, of course, find uh, this content anywhere you listen to, to podcasts. And we will be back uh, with less left-wing takeover, but all the great content that you're used to, used to hearing from Rising. So take care. All right. Now we'll see you guys on Friday with Emily. Peace. Bye-bye.